Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest has been living and working in Asia since 2006. He has written for Lonely Planet, published his own travel guides, and built multiple online brands that reach tens of millions of people each year. He currently lives with his wife and two boys in Thailand, and he is an expert on online security and identity protection, and is the host of the All Things Secured YouTube channel. Please welcome to the show, Josh Summers. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well, Mikhail. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. I think that your topic and, and what you discuss on your program is so timely and so, so important. So I guess before we jump into everything, maybe give us a little bit of a background on how you got interested in this and how you started your work. Well, yeah. I mean, I first, when I was in university, I spent a year studying abroad in Central America and really fell in love with kind of just being overseas in a different culture. And so when my wife and I got married in 2005, uh, one of the first things we did is we moved out to China. We were in Western China. I don't know where your family, you, I know you got a wife that's from China. I don't know if they're kind of Eastern side. That's usually where they're from. Close to Chengdu, close in Sichuan area, kind of around there. That is some good food. At least you got some good food going for you there. Spicy. (laughs) Yes. Yes, definitely spicy. So I was in the far west. So think north of Tibet. We bordered Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. And the benefits of that were that we got a lot of great cultural mix. You know, it wasn't just ethnic Chinese. It was also ethnic Uyghur, ethnic Kazakh, a lot of Central Asian influence that brought just a lot of unique parts of living there, including not just cuisine, but also customs, all of that kind of stuff. But it also brought a lot of conflict, ethnic conflict in that part of the world. And that's what really sped along a lot of surveillance in that part of China. Not to say that I was truly excited about that, but I did learn a lot from that experience. When you find yourself in a place where, you know, cameras, I would get off the bus and between the bus stop and my house, there were like eight cameras that were doing facial recognition as I was walking to my house. So you just, you learn one, how to live with that, but also what privacy protections are most important, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of our privacy that's already exposed, whether we like it or not, just being on Facebook or being on the internet, but knowing what you have control over and how you want to control that, that's what is really important. And that's what I I took away from spending time in China. So it's interesting that you do mention this because 
as a content creator, how do you kind of bridge the gap between your own personal privacy, but still being out there and building a business? I know this is something that I struggle with a lot. Oh, I can only imagine, you know, I mean, I heard in your last episode, even just talking about how I'm not going to say exactly where I have my investments or exactly where I've bought property. And, and I totally get that, right? Because there's part of it where you want to be like the internet rewards transparency or YouTube and an audience rewards just feeling like they connect with you. And, and I do want to connect with my audience, but I also want to have privacy. And so there's certain things like I do my best to make sure that my actual address, my actual phone number is not out there. And yet I did start the channel. And, and the one question I get asked a lot is, is your name really Josh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, it is really Josh. <laughs> like I wasn't smart enough to go do, you know, start everything under a pseudonym. So yes, my name's really Josh. And I think I'm okay with that. I know that I probably paint a little bit of a target on my back. I don't know if you feel that same way. So I have to know my risk tolerance and try not to flirt with that line too much. Well, my industry is the offshore markets, so it has a bad reputation all around and some of it is warranted and a lot of it is not warranted. But I made a decision seven, eight years ago when I moved into this full time that this is all I was going to do was this, that I wanted to be the lighthouse. This was my idea. I wanted to shine a light on the things. I wanted to show that you can work in the offshore markets, do this type of work and still be transparent, be legal, be compliant, go through it all properly. I use my real face and my real name. I have competitors out there who use pseudonyms and fake names and things like that. And I think that when you do that, you just start off the relationship on the wrong foot with a client. So it's like, if you're not even going to share your real name or your, your real image or anything like that be out there, then how are you going to build that trust with them to help them go through these often very, personal, very intricate details about their life. So I wanted to be this kind of lighthouse to help them and to know that there is a trustworthy person. So everything that I do is really try to have morals and ethics at the beginning. But then as you said, you know, this separation between that and then like my family life, like you're a father, I'm a father. There's things that our children, they don't get to choose these things, what they're going to put out. So my perspective is, I don't have any pictures of my kids online, any pictures of my wife and I together online. I try to keep that separate. Now, if I have a client who will come to Panama to visit me and, and I know the client, then yeah, I'll bring my kids along and bring my wife and stuff like that. But I can make those decisions on an individual basis. But what do you think? How is your perspective when viewing these things? No, I mean, I 100% agree with you on that. I think there's one thing, considering what you're putting out there that is on a platform that can be scraped, that is constantly being, you know, the Wayback Machine, just there's, there's constantly just this backup of the internet that's happening. And so putting that stuff out there, whatever I put on Twitter, whatever I put on YouTube, I just have to assume that that will forever be available that information. And so when I'm thinking about these very public platforms, that's the lens through which I want to see that. And I agree with you. I don't want to put my kids' faces on 
anything related to my businesses just because that's not fair to them. And I just don't think that's a good practice to, to do. And same with my wife as well. But, you know, like you said as well, when it comes to little, you know, when it's more intimate, when it's individuals, I do want to build that trust. I mean, it's not like I want to go in hiding. Like the whole idea of there's different levels of privacy and security, right? I've got people that do similar YouTube channels that are all about going completely off grid, like as much as you can. And if that's you, I mean, there's everybody has a different threat model. I don't have that threat model. My threat model says I just want to protect my privacy within a reasonable amount. I call myself a privacy pragmatist, where what is pragmatic for me to be able to accomplish? For me, that doesn't mean deleting Facebook. It doesn't mean not using an Apple phone. I still use an Apple phone and I get, you know, as a privacy person, I get <laughs> made fun of a lot of times for that. And, and I'm okay with that. It's I pick and choose. And I think you and I are probably on the same page in that there's certain things that when it's related to my family, I'm very picky. And then when it's related to other things, I'm I'm a little more laissez-faire. Yeah, it's interesting, especially with a lot of the technology platforms, because I think that we also have to be very clear at the beginning, the different types of people or organizations that you're trying to be private from. I have some people who... What they're really trying to protect from is online hackers, identity theft, things like that. Then I have other people who are, or or other things to consider are you're trying to have privacy from big tech. And then other people want to have privacy from governments. I can tell you privacy from governments, especially like the US government is- It's very hard. Very hard. And please make sure you stay legal and compliant on these things. If you're supposed to file something, file it. The, always the objective is more freedom, not less freedom. So- there's privacy, but we also don't want to get orange jumpsuit situation. So, but these three kind of groups, I mean, I would also imagine that the strategies are are kind of different. Like you had mentioned, you have an iPhone. Okay. An iPhone is going to maybe keep you very secure from online hackers, but obviously big tech, it, it is big tech. So how do you think about these types of things? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're thinking about just these different type of threat models, right, which is the way I would I would kind of view that, uh, you know, you're talking about people that are feeling they're more worried about just big tech or government or just hackers or online security in general. And so I think those are three different mindsets and therefore three different solution sets almost. So for some people, let's say if you're worried a little bit more about big tech and government, go in something like a de-Googled phone, right? So something that is open source operating system that has zero apps that are produced by Google or Apple that are going to track you and, and have any of the telemetry stuff. That That's one, I would say, more extreme and, and I don't want to say that in a negative way, because if, if that's you, that, that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. It's just recognize that that extreme is, does not apply to everybody. Just because my mom wants to be more secure online, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily give her a de-Googled phone. Right? I'm not going to try to get her to understand how to use something that, that's an open source platform, an open source, you know, anything like that. And like you were saying, so one of the things that I kind of, for me as a baseline is I have virtual addresses, both for my personal, me personally, as well as for my business. I've got virtual phone numbers that I have control over that don't ring my actual cell phone number. But when I file my taxes, I have to put my actual address and my actual social security number. I can create as many pseudonyms as I want to use, give to all these other places that don't necessarily need it. But yeah, I have to live by the law of the land where I have my passport. And so I've, I've got to do that. For sure. And for the big tech piece, I mean, we talked 
very quickly about Apple, but one of the villains out there is Google. Google is absolutely harvesting our data. We have no idea with it. But if your main concern is hackers, Google has pretty darn good security with a lot of that stuff. So it's like you can try some of one of these brand new startups that is promising the world and their website looks very flashy and is going to protect everything that you have and all of this stuff. But it's a brand new startup with a couple hundred thousand dollars behind it. Or you have Google, one of the largest companies, corporations in the world. And their reputation is based on keeping data secure. So although I'm not a fan of Google by any means, I think that it's important to get your mindset straight on, on what you're trying to do. Because getting hacked, that's not fun either. And if you're a business owner or something like that, you have a responsibility for data protection. If you have sensitive client data, you have to really take care of those things. Exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a baseline that I think everybody should be concerned about, right? Like this baseline that says, okay, do you have a strong, like this is like very, very basic, strong passwords. And I would say that if you're not using a password manager, you're very likely not doing it well. And I mean, there are some people that can get by just creating their own passwords, but most of us, a password manager is kind of just, that's level one. And then right on top of that would be adding two-factor authentication. I think that two-factor authentication, if it's available, is something that everybody should be adding. This isn't just something for crypto enthusiasts. This is if you have an investment account that offers two-factor security, you should be using that. And if you have the means to buy a two-factor key, something like from YubiKey or I'm sure the Nitro key, there's a bunch out there. That's going to be the like, that's like the deadbolt on the lock of your front door. And then there's other little things. I generally preach that it's good to freeze your credit. That's kind of a general kind of protection thing for those of us that are in the US. But I think that's actually now applying to Canada and Europeans as well, where these credit bureaus are popping up and, and having an influence in these other places as well. And you have the option to go in and freeze your credit. But then, like you're saying, that that next level where if you're worried about big tech and the, I'd say there are, like you said, there are good kind of startups. And then there are those that are somewhat established, right? If you want true end-to-end -end encryption for your email. So that's not, I mean, Gmail encrypts your email. They do, whether it's at rest or at movement, but it's not always the highest level of encryption. And it's not always encrypted. It depends on who you're sending to, right? And how they're encrypting and what happens when that email hits their inbox. So for me personally, I still have a Gmail account. But if I'm sending anything sensitive, I'm using my encrypted ProtonMail account. If I'm sending something to my CPA that would have anything, I want to make sure that one, he's not going to have a copy just laying on his email server. If he wants to download something and keep that privately, uh, like that, that's what I need him to do. But I don't want it just sitting on his email server. So I'm going to send it to him in a way that it requires him to have a password and it requires like, it's just, it's encrypted. And that's the protection that I want. Honestly, I think that for anybody that is of a general high net worth, so even just anything above median level income, I think that's a good practice, but it's a lot to ask some people. You've got to be motivated. And that's where, you know, if you've got the right motivation and then you've got the the means, then, then setting some of that stuff, it's not that hard. It just, it takes a little bit of effort to put it together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that as you look at these things, we can also kind of break it. So, so we've already broke it down into the three categories that someone might 
want to be concerned about. But there's also from the personal side and from the business side, I think it's very, very different. If you are a individual and you just want to have more privacy in your life, okay, amazing. If you're a business owner and you deal with client data or things like that, that's a whole different level, different oh, yeah. suite of tools and things that you need to do. So let's kind of go through things. You mentioned a couple of them, okay, 2FA and a secure email. Let's kind of go through things one by one, dig into them a little bit so that people kind of have the lay of the land. I, I would love this episode to be really like a, a resource for my clients and my subscribers to kind of go back to and let's kind of go, all right, check mark, check mark, check mark. Because as you said, as you start going through this, you're adding to it. It's not about doing everything at the exact same time. It's not about having it. If you can't do everything, then there's no point in doing anything. It's like, no, these things stack. And actually, it's the exact same in my work. When clients come to me and we start looking at taking them offshore and making them an expat. All right, we're first looking at their residencies. Then we're looking at citizenships. Then we're looking at restructuring businesses offshore. Then we're looking at the banking sectors. Now we're looking at the investments. And each step that we go through on these tracks, the more freedom they have, each one that they kind of add on to each other. So I think it is very much the same in a lot of your work. But you you please correct me if, if I'm wrong on any of this. No, no, I completely agree with you. So I, I think I know where I, I would want to start, but I want to make sure, well, like, what did you have an idea on? No. So we went through them so fast. I think that let's go right back to the beginning and spend like two minutes on each one. You had said at the very beginning, you know, you need to have 2FA. And there's a couple of things like that. Maybe kind of break down what that is. And I don't know, getting an SMS as your 2FA, is that enough? Sounds good. All right. So let's back up to like the very, very beginning. Whenever you're logging on or creating an account for pretty much anything online, there's two pieces of main information that they're going to get from you, right? Either a username or an email address that the, that you have to create and then a password. And the way that most people do it is we put in our email address and then we hopefully create a unique somewhat secure password. Now I say hopefully because I know that the majority, like the majority of people, according to studies, just have a weak password. And a, and a strong password does not mean just replacing the at for an A and re replacing, you know, an I with an exclamation point. Like mathematically speaking, the stronger password is not one that has a lot of different characters and everything. The stronger password is just a long one. So if you've got a phrase like, you know, the itsy bitsy spider climbed up the water spout, like I know that's, that would be a terrible password, but it's long enough that mathematically it's actually a really good password. So if you have poetry verse or Bible verse, or if you've got something that is, is short, but still like in terms of characters, it's long enough. That's a strong start. Password managers make that a whole lot easier though, honestly. And do you use a password manager, by the way, have you ever done that? I will not comment on things like this, but uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. No worries. I won't ask. Absolutely. I probably spend about, ooh, I don't know, $10,000 a month on different security things. So. Gotcha. Makes sense. So then, but what a lot of people fail to do is they fail to realize that it, those two pieces of information are actually equally important. 
So a lot of times the username, which we tend to just have as our email address, that's like key one. Like if you're looking, if you remember like nuclear codes, you know, if a, if an, if a president has to send off nuclear, they've got to have his key and then they got to have somebody else sticking in the other key and turning at the same time in order for it to work. And a lot of times we give up this first key and basically just throw it in the trash. But there are a lot of options for securing that part of your email as well. So I use email services that create pseudonyms basically, and you can just create them on the fly. And they're just extensions to my browser that will create a pseudonym and then track it to that. So it's just one email per service. So that if my Netflix account gets hacked for some reason, no other account, you know, like a hacker can't take my email address and then brute force these other places because that email address only works for Netflix. Now that's, I would say that that's like level two. Level one is just, hey, have strong passwords. But if you want to go to that next level, then there are a lot of different services that that offer something like that. Proton has one. I'm trying, I think it's called Simple Login is I think the one that they use. And then there's Anonati and there's uh, others like that that can create these pseudonym emails on the fly. So that's kind of like what I would consider level one or 1.2. And then the next one that we were talking about is 2FA. Okay, pause for a second because I do want to ask a couple of follow-up questions because actually, yeah, so I do use a password manager and I kind of set mine at 40 characters, random generated, uppercase, lowercase, special symbols. Yep. Like whatever the max it will be, it's kind of goes all in on that. I don't, I don't think that there's anything bad about sharing this, but I hope not. But on these types of things, the password manager, we need to have a certain amount of trust in the password manager software itself. So anything that we should know or think about or consider, because if they have all the passwords and something happens there, what does that mean for us? That's a great point. So there's a couple of things to say to that. First is your master password for your password manager should be very good. That's kind of a, a no-brainer. And yet, you know, I've seen people that just have weak passwords to enter in their password manager, and it kind of negates the whole security of having a password manager. But there's two other things I'd add to that. First is you can actually have a 2FA key for your password manager that you can use to log in. But the second side of this, and this is something that I've called a double blind password. I think it's, you know, other people call it salting, but for my most important accounts. So we're talking about things that I definitely don't want anybody else getting into. Even if they hacked into my password manager, someone was that motivated. I don't want them to be able to get into my investment accounts. I don't want them to be able to get into my, my bank. So then what I, I do, what's known as salting or a double blind password. So if you were to ask me what my banking password is, I couldn't tell you, you know, if you were to open up my password manager you wouldn't get my actual password. So what I do is when I create the password, I have my password manager create that strong password that you were talking about, and then I salt it. In other words, I add in personally a, and I'm not going to say how many digits, but let's say a three to 10 digit extra on the back end of that, that only I know. It doesn't get stored in the password manager. So that whenever I'm logging into some of these accounts, I have the password manager first input what's saved in the password manager. And then I type in personally Super smart. what's on the back end. And so the password manager doesn't have the full password, but neither do I. And so if you don't trust your password manager, that is one way that you can do it. It would be hard to do that for all of your passwords, but for the ones that are most important. Sure. That's super smart. That's amazing. I never thought about that one. Yeah. I got to 
I'm going to go take care of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I also like your tip about the specialized email address because you're right. If there's two big pieces of information is the username or email address to log in and the password. If we're only securing the password, that's only half the story. So to be able to use something else. Now, so you said that it's a browser extension which will auto-generate an email address for that one. And then what happens? It's just kind of a redirect to your main one in case you need to get an email from them or something, or how does that look? Exactly. So on the back end of that, and you don't have to use the browser extension, right? So I've got one that I use for all newsletters and it's newsletters at, I think, you know, I've got a couple little things at simple log or simple login.com or IO. I don't know what it is. I should know, but I don't. And what that means though, is that on the back end, when I log into my dashboard, I can direct it to go wherever I want. And I've got one that's kind of my, like, I've got one Gmail account. That's kind of my trash account that doesn't get fed into my personal account. I only check it when I absolutely need to. And so a lot of them just go straight into there, unless it's something that I need to get. And I still do it for a lot of the logins where I need to get those emails. And I just make sure they get routed to my personal address, but they never see what my real address is. Even if I were to reply to it, they wouldn't see what my real address is. Okay. Okay. Amazing. Those are very good tips. Very good tips. And and above and beyond normally what we kind of see in securing online, like it's usually use a password manager. Okay. Yeah. But actually the extra pieces to it are very interesting. Now for the 2FA, I, I hope everybody understands we're talking about two two-factor authentication. The common ways are getting an SMS, using Google Authenticator. As you had said, like a YubiKey, I think is definitely next level. What should people know about 2FA besides the fact that you actually have to use it? You really need to go through this. Like I had to like beat the crap out of my staff members. I got 18 staff who work for me and to get them all to use 2FA on every one of the accounts. They're like, yeah, 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 I'll take care of it. And then like, you can see it's not done. Like get them, like they get locked out of things and they're like, what do you do now? I'm like, you got to set it up. I can told you like, (laughs) get it done. Yeah. So let's get into 2FA a little bit. Yeah. And it's, it is crazy that, I mean, we just tend to value convenience so much, but 2FA is one of those things that in my mind, it is a no brainer that like, that's still base level. That's not, that's for, you know, we were talking about those three categories of people. I think 2FA fits into every single one of those. I don't think that's just if you don't like big tech or just if you don't like, you know, the government or whatnot, like everybody should be doing 2FA. And there are three types of 2FA. I think you kind of mentioned them. You've got the SMS text, you've got authenticator apps, those six digit, they're called time-based one-time passcodes that refresh every 30 seconds. Uh, That can be done through an app. It can be done through software. It can be done a lot of different ways. And then you've got the 2FA key. Generally speaking, and I think that if your audience is a lot of expats, like you, you know, that like using SMS text, it's already a headache. Because I've got to now use my virtual number and some services don't like virtual numbers. Most will accept that and they'll do that. But like I tried to do something with the IRS once and they would absolutely not accept my virtual address, my virtual phone number. I had to use like my mom's phone number or something like that, which is that's another story. It just kind of frustrates me a little bit. But if you can, if you're going to avoid using SMS text, and one of the primary reasons other than convenience for expats is that there's something known as, as SM, or SIM swap, the SIM attack, where even Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, I don't know if you saw, this was a number of years ago, but it's actually happened not to him, but to other people since then, where 
All someone has to do is socially engineer a, you know, one of these phone workers at a phone company and say, Hey, I lost my phone. My name's Jack Dorsey. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, what's your mother's maiden name? You know, Google, Google. Yeah, my yeah, mother's Facebook, maiden name yeah. is Smith. <laughs> It's yeah. like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. And then they switch the phone over to, you know, from Jack's phone to theirs. And now they do a reset on Twitter and get the code and they have the ability to do that. And that's what, what's crazy is that they didn't even do that for Jack's Twitter. They actually found out that Jack was using another service to post onto Twitter and they hijacked that service. And so oftentimes we don't even realize how intertwined our, in our online lives are such that somebody doesn't necessarily need to have the login to our bank. All they need is a login to this other service that we've long time ago connected to our bank through Plaid or through some other service. And now they've got the ability to just withdraw tons of funds, you know? Wow. Yeah, going back through and seeing the integrations between different softwares and things that you set up is definitely a step that I would take for anybody who's listening to go back through and see, hey, what is connected to your email account? What is connected to your accounting software or any of these types of things? What are the integrations, the APIs or any of these types of bridges on there? Because you know maybe it was secure at the time that you got it and maybe it is not now. And those things can stay around for a very long time. Now for the 2FA, okay, so so we kind of tackled maybe an SMS version is not the best. And I can definitely testify that as you travel around the world, trying to get a text message in different countries, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. So I think that's always just been a real pain in the butt for expats. Now the app, how secure are those? Because from my understanding, a lot of them can be used even if you're not online, they still work, which is for an expat, for a convenience standpoint, this is really fantastic because all you need to have is have the device and then you can still get on. And if you don't have local service or something while you're out and I don't know, from a convenience standpoint, it works. But how about from the security aspect? Correct. Yeah. So what you're basically what you're saying, because a time-based one-time passcode, which is that second kind of 2FA, it's one of those things that's based on an algorithm that is multiplied by time, right? And so that's how the you come up with this six-digit passcode. And that doesn't need to be connected to the internet. It just needs to know the time based on what your phone says. So you could, the, the problem would be if you were to like have your phone isn't connected well to time, like it, it it's off on its time, then you could have problems. But from a security standpoint, it really depends on the service. And one of the things that I would recommend is don't just go out there and download any 2FA app. And there's a lot out there that are on the internet uh, or on the app stores that, that you could download, whether that's the Apple or the Google Play. If you are looking for an excellent privacy phone, then I encourage you to check out riseabovephone.com. These are completely de-Googled phones that can't track or spy on you. To fight back against what is happening in the world, we need to take back our privacy. And the best place to start is at riseabovephone.com. Expat Money listeners can get $50 off on any of their phone models by using coupon code expatprivacy. Go to riseabovephone.com and use coupon code expatprivacy for $50 off of your purchase. That's riseabovephone.com. So, you know, you've got things like Google Authenticator, which generally speaking, again, like most Google products, it's a good product, right? If you don't trust Google, 
it's a horrible product. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, it kind of depends. And there are changes that are happening even just this week as we're recording this, where I think Google is going to start to allow you to back up that app to your Google account, which in some ways is great because people don't are horrible at backing up, which that, I want to get to that in just a moment, Mikhail, because that's a, that's a big thing, but they're horrible at backing up. And so if they lose everything and they go to Google and say, Hey, you know, I lost my phone. Can you give me my codes back? And Google says, we don't have them. They're your codes. They were on your phone. We don't back them up. And that was becoming a problem. And so I think they're starting to change that. But that also means now that Google holds those keys as well. In my opinion, you need to be in a responsible adult and you need to be able to hold the keys to your own security. And part of that means owning those codes, right? And, and there's other apps like Authy where you kind of can do that. There's some people that don't like Authy as well. There are other ways like actually my, and I know you're not gonna be able to see this if you're listening to the podcast, but like I use the Yubico app and if I, I keep my codes actually on the key so that when I plug into my phone, the think the uh, codes show up, right? So the codes are actually kept on the key itself as opposed to on any device. So it kind of boils down to, again, like what's your threat model? What are you trying to accomplish? Generally speaking, Google Authenticator is fine for, I mean, it's better than SMS text. So I'd say go for that. A next level would be like Authy, a similar thing, but more than anything else, even if you're using a 2FA key, which is kind of what, the gold standard for 2FA, Backing up, I mean, it's not just an option, like it is absolutely critical. I have a primary key that I keep on me and then I have a backup key that is not on me. It is stored in another place that only my wife knows. And so if I have to, worst case scenario, she knows exactly where that is and she's going to get it and use it there. But even beyond that, anytime you set up an account and you create that account, you set up the 2FA, almost every single service is going to give you what are either backup codes or a seed phrase, similar to like what you get with a crypto account or something, a wallet. And writing that down or having it, putting it in a safe, keeping it, I wouldn't necessarily say in your password manager, but in a a secure digital place, you could be done, but just making sure that you have that backup. Like that is, whenever we're talking about 2FA, I just feel like that's such an important part of it that if you, I get way too many emails from people that are like, hey, I got locked out of my crypto wallet or I got locked out of my yeah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Can you please help me? And it's like, I, sorry, I can't. Yeah. We've seen this and, you know, we're pretty big into crypto in my community and yeah. Lots of horror stories with this one. Actually, I, I have a private client. I won't say their name just obviously for privacy reasons. But just yesterday, I was talking to them. And he's like, yeah, I had, a, I think it was a Trezor or a Ledger or something like that. He's like, I've lost the seed phrase. And I don't know the password. How do I get back into that? I'm like, well, you can't. You can't. I mean, like... <laughs> And then he's, I was like, how much was on there? He's like, well, none. I'm just learning about it. And I was like, amazing. Perfect. You've just done the greatest thing ever. You have totally screwed this up. And on the back end, there's no money in there whatsoever. So you've learned a valuable lesson. And having to pay it's not going to cost you like a hundred grand or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yep. So I was super uh, stoked for him. I was very happy. 
Yeah. I did the same thing. I actually bought, I don't know if you've done this, but I, I bought like my domain as a, you know, they had like unstoppable domains. Like, I don't know what service, but it was like these where you can, it can be like a crypto domain. that's not mm -hmm. owned by a certain service. And then I lost my own keys to it. So I'm never going to be able to use my own name, <laughs> but, <laughs> but thankfully I did it on something as trivial as that, as opposed to like, you're saying something that actually had a lot of money on it. Bitcoin buying at $5 or something like that. Exactly. Then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be bad. Okay. So Kevin, if we gone through some of the different levels, step one, step two, step three, let's get into a couple more of the advanced things. If people are looking at listening to this episode and they're going, come on, Mikkel, I know this stuff already. I'm pretty savvy online. What are some, some more advanced techniques that people should really be thinking about? So once you get past 2FA, I really think that masking your information is one of the best things to start considering. And you can mask a lot of different information, right? You can mask everything from your phone number, but, you know, with virtual phone numbers, I mean, some of this is pretty easy and trivial. Like maybe there's a lot of people that do it, but you got your address, you know, your physical address, you can use virtual addresses for something like that, but even stuff like credit cards, like there's very few times when I'm shopping online or I'm buying, purchasing anything online, which is a lot of what I purchase nowadays that I'm using my actual credit card. Either I'm using cards that are dedicated to those specific services or I'm using one-time use cards. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that would be like, I know Wise has this. You can generate a credit card in one second with a click of a button. It'll give you a random generated one. You use it. And then what do you do? You just cancel it afterwards or reject it afterwards or something like that. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Well, it depends on the service, right? So every kind of bank or banking institution like, like place will treat it a little differently. Uh, but I'll give you an example, right? I've got property back in the U S and I had like, I got a note, like I've got renters there and I got a notice from, you know, the city that was like, Hey, you need to, you've got terribly overgrown trees, all this stuff. It's like, oh crap. So call, get somebody to go out and do it. And it's just this mom and pop shop that are, they send me a bill for like 800 bucks. Like it was, it was a lot of, of yard work. And they're like, you can just pay by credit card. Just send us the number by email. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like that? Like, I don't even know who these people are. Like, I don't know how well they secure all their stuff. I mean, if these other big online retailers can get hacked, then some mom and pop shop can definitely get hacked. So I used a service. I mean, there's there's a lot of them out there. I'll just name a few. Privacy.com. There's one called Clutch. There's a lot of these, you know, Citibank or you were mentioning Wise that will kind of generate these. And like I said, they each operate differently. Some of them allow you to actually set up whether how much they are monthly spending. So I've got, you know, one card that I've created for Netflix that can only be charged $20 a month ever. So even if someone were to steal that card, it can only be charged $20. Or in the case of this person that did my lawn, I created a one-time use card that could only be charged for $800. And then after that, it died. Now the card itself still lives on because the, the next question that people ask is, well, what if there's a refund? Like, what if I need to get money back? The money, the, the card still lives and that it can receive money back, but it can't be charged again. It gets closed in terms of being able to use. So I have cards that are for specific merchants. So I've got an Amazon card that even if someone were to hack Amazon and try to use that card, it only works for Amazon. And then I can easily cancel it. As an expat, I'm sure, I don't know, have you ever had your credit card stolen or you've had any kind of fraud on your credit card? Is that ever? I definitely, I've had charges that are not supposed to be there. And sometimes I'm, 
Actually, I'm still fighting a couple of them right now here in Panama, which is is definitely no fun. It's no fun. And what's worse is if you have to cancel that card, instead of waiting the week to get your card back, you have to wait for them to send it to whatever US address or whatever home address you've got. And then for that to be forwarded on to wherever you're at. So I'm out of credit card for like three to four weeks at the least. And I just, like I say that because I had that happen to me just last year and it's, and it was annoying. So being able to use these virtual credit cards and then just log in and cancel them, it makes a huge difference for me. And I've really enjoyed that as kind of an added layer of privacy for myself. So just to make sure that I understand, so you have your normal credit card on the back end, and then on the kind of the front end, it creates these virtual cards, which all take the money from your normal MasterCard or Visa or whatever it is. And then you just keep that one private for everything. Is that how it works? Almost. So you can't fund, in most cases, you can't fund with a credit card. So you have to fund with either your bank account or a debit card. And that, so the downside to this or or what people would knock against this method is that now you're putting your trust in one company that, that now has access to your bank account. But I would counter that by saying, okay, well, you're putting your trust in hundreds of different organizations. I would rather know, okay, I I trust wise. And so I'm going to say, hey, they've got access to my bank. They can withdraw funds. And I'm going to now just give virtual card numbers out to a lot of the different merchants that I'm purchasing from. Okay. And so that would be like a SaaS program that you'd be signing up for, or it's a browser extension, or what are the, the aspects of that? Like, how does it practically work? Yeah. So now you're getting into what's known as the KYC problem where the know your customer. So if it is seriously just a SaaS and they're not acting as a bank, they're just acting as that middle person between, you know, the merchant and your bank, then there's no KYC. And there's so like privacy.com would be an example where I can just sign up for privacy.com. They'll create these cards and they'll use it just like that. It it is a SaaS service where there's others like Clutch, where you are actually applying for a credit card and they are the credit provider. And then they create the virtual cards on the back end of that. And so in that case, I have to go through the entire KYC process. I've got to give them all of my data. And so there's it again, it depends on what your threat model is, which direction you would go in that way. Makes sense. I'm I'm taking notes here myself, Josh. I'm taking notes (laughs) here myself. Very, very interesting. Okay. So, and you had mentioned at the very beginning on this one that, you know, we went down the rabbit hole of credit cards, but you also said that you can be doing this with your, your physical address or your home address. Maybe walk us through that aspect of the privacy, because I think that is an extremely important one that people kind of are very frivolous with giving out their home address. Yeah, that surprises me as well. And I think it's just because there are not that many cases where it sounds like somebody's had their home invaded and it was all because they put their home address on something. So so we do, it's just not top of mind, but I still think it's really important. And I, I remember still, like I was for the longest time using my parents' home address because I was living overseas, even as my business address. So, you know, when you send out an email, at least in the U.S., the law requires you to put some kind of address at the bottom of that email. And my parents were starting to get like this weird stuff in the mail. And at one point they just (laughs) kind of sent me an ultimatum. They're like, Josh, you have got to move away from our address. And so that got me like, okay, well, I got to figure out something. And there are a lot of different what are known as virtual address options. So many that I got kind of worried about it. And I 
I'll have to, maybe, maybe I'll send you the link to this video because I was, it was probably one of the more fun videos that I got to do when I was back in the U S one year, I just decided, Hey, I got to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. Like these virtual addresses, who's picking up my mail? Like, how does it look? What does it look like? And so then I just went and I like sent, I, I did a air tag in three different envelopes. And then I sent it to three different places. And then I went and visited across the country, all those different places. And what you've got is you've got, you know, and like any business, right? You've got kind of the low cost, low quality, you know, you can have an address at one of those mom and pop mail shops in a strip center where I literally walked in and said, Hey, I'm looking for mail for Josh. And they didn't even ask for my driver's license. They didn't ask for nothing. They just gave me the, the, the package. I was like, all right, thanks. Definitely not Fort Knox. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, it's interesting because sometimes people, their first decision maker is cost. I can do a service for this one for $20 a month or that one's $200 a month. And it's like, and I don't mean just this. I mean, just in general, anything people always, it's a race to the bottom. And it's like, it should not be a race to the bottom. Like, why is it so cheap? If as a business owner, you can understand how tight margins can be. So it's like, Maybe you want to pay more. Maybe with that money, they're going to be able to provide a better service, be more secure. You know, there's a lot of extra things, even hire more competent people on the back end. So maybe a race to the bottom, not a good idea. This is not Walmart, so. Oh, exactly. And then one of the virtual addresses, the one that I still use now today because of this experience, it was a business center. It was unmarked and it was all locked and like shaded window door. Like I, I couldn't even go and peek in to see what was happening. And thankfully I contacted them beforehand. And so they gave me a tour of the inside. They got security cameras everywhere. In order to pick it up, you've got to provide your driver's license or passport or something like that. And so you can have different kinds of virtual addresses where if the security of your mail is of utmost importance to you, then having something that maybe costs a little bit more. And, and it's not even the difference between 20 and $200. It's the difference between 20 and like $50. So it really doesn't even make sense why you wouldn't want to just pay a little bit more. But for me, especially out here as a business owner in Thailand, like I want to be able to get my mail, they scan it for me if I ask them to, and then I can have them forward it anywhere, or I can have them shred it and they have it professionally disposed of. Uh, and it just gives me a lot of confidence in my mail. And it also gives me the convenience of not having that forwarded all around the world if it doesn't have to be. No, it absolutely makes sense. A lot of the times people think about hiding their addresses just to make sure they don't get doxxed or something like that. Yeah. I think that that is very important, but there's all the way little things like your mail as well that you need to protect. But I think that there's kind of everything in between as well, making sure that you secure where you live so that people can't just, I don't know, come and knock on your door one day. And especially as a content creator like you and I both am, yeah. I can't just have my personal address out there. And, and actually... I get recognized on the streets here in Panama. I was hiking on the weekend with my daughter and someone came up to me. I've been out with my family on the streets and, and people have recognized me and things like that. That's like, wow, you know, that's just walking around or being out for dinner or something. But if I had my home address, I've been, I don't know, it'd yeah. be a bit weird, I, I think so. Well, and I think when we talk about it like that, like we're talking about it in a very benign way, but most of the time, if somebody's looking for your home address, it's because you've ticked them off, right? And that's the worst kind of person that you want to be able to find 
you know, so in, in the positions that we're in, and honestly, sometimes if you're in business, you're going to tick somebody off. Like somebody's just not going to be happy with something you say. And I don't want to make it easy for them to try to act on their anger. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, I think that you would get it in a different way that I get it. This is my, my suspicion. My guess would be, Hey, Josh runs the all things secured YouTube channel. Therefore, I'm going to try to make Josh look like an asshole and I'm going to yes. ask him just for shits and <laughs> giggles, you know? Yes. So that would probably be, that's my guess is how you would get it. Mine, on the other hand, is I am a, a very outspoken, freedom fighting type of person. And with that, I often offend a lot of people. Now, <laughs> the people who think the same as I do, they're not offended about it. They agree with me on these types of things. But somehow I get random Marxists who kind of wander onto my email newsletter. And then they're like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And send me hate mail. I have literally, literally gotten death threats before. I'm going to fly to Panama. I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to like, well, you challenge people's belief patterns on what they think is real. And it's a highly emotionally charged thing. You know, if, if think about it, if someone has spent their entire life thinking one thing and now you call them on it and you challenge them about it, most people are not personal responsible enough to kind of look at it and go, all right, is there credibility to what he's saying or is he just being a jerk? It's much easier just to go, he's wrong, point the finger and just hate on someone. So I have literally gotten death threats before. And when that started happening, I took this stuff a lot more seriously. Like, yeah, I bet. I carry a handgun here in Panama. So I'm a father. I'm a husband. I got responsibility and I'm not going to stop saying the things that I think that need to be said. But at the same time, I will take a lot of the privacy that we're talking about today seriously. And I have a SIG with me at all times and I'm very happy to carry. So legally, compliantly. Yeah. You know, and for those of us that are expats living overseas, this isn't as much of an issue, but I think most people would be surprised if they were to Google their name and like even their hometown or the, the town that they're living in. These places like People Search or White Pages or what, what are known as data scrapers, they gather a lot of information about us. And it's, sometimes it's scary to just think about how easy it would be for somebody to find a phone number or an address or just who you're connected to what's your mother's name and therefore what's her maiden name, those type of pieces of information. And, uh, and, that, and so now there's a new group of, or series of companies that work to help remove all of that information from the internet. And that's, you know, something for those that are really trying to remove their online presence that is worth considering as well. No, that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, any other big tips or other things that people should consider when trying to secure everything online? You know, we went through some really good things, but any other ones that you can think of that like, oh, the listener, they got to know about this one. I, I forgot to tell them about that one. <laughs> the only thing I'd say, and I mean, this can be easy for pretty much anything. Anybody that's listening to this podcast, I believe is when you're asked for a form of ID, I always tell people to use your passport. 
Like if you're used for, you're, you're requesting for a, an official, like you have to give this in, right? So not just giving it to anybody willy nilly, but as opposed to my driver's license. So think about it. What's the information that's on my passport? My, what's on my passport is my name, my birthday, and maybe my, my city of birth. Whereas on my driver's license, you've got my name, my birthday, my address, my blood type, my eye color, like you've got all of these other pieces of information. And it's maybe it's not that much, but it's like as as often as I can, I want to give over as little as I can. And so whenever I'm asked for an official documentation and I'm given the choice between a passport and a driver's license, I'm always going to go for a passport. And then I'm going to challenge anytime they request more information than I think they need. A lot of times I think that these accounts, they request more than they need. That's super interesting because my instinct would have told me the exact opposite. But as you explain it, it definitely makes sense. But I always think of the highest level of document is your passport. This is the intergovernment relationship where you're able to enter a country because of this diplomatic thing. So like that seems like a very high level. A driver's license is your permission to, to drive on the roads. The passport is your permission to travel between countries. So I always kind of thought about it that way, where I've always hid my passport and kind of refused to give that out. But actually on your example of the information that's presented on the front page of the passport is very different than a driver's license, as you had said, your height, your weight, your address, which goes back to our previous conversation. Well, and, and now that I think about it, like I'm remembering kind of a little bit more of, of your your audience and stuff. Like I can see like if, if what you're worried about more than anything else is just that government piece, then I can see that maybe passport wouldn't be what you'd go, go for. But in terms of information that's provided, a passport is definitely ideal over a driver's license if you have to give something over. Well, I remember when I first started traveling internationally in 2000, when you would go to a hotel, they were never asking for ID, never, ever, ever, and certainly not a passport. And then kind of over the years, it became standard practice to ask for a passport. And I started getting in fights with receptionists and stuff like that. I'm like, this is a Canadian passport to enter a country. You are a hotel. What possible need would you have for my passport? I'm already in the country. This is has to do with immigration. It's a totally different thing. And I argued it for a while and made them understand and got away with it. But piece by piece, now it's mandatory. Now, anywhere and everywhere you go, you have to give your passport over when you're coming into a hotel. And it just seemed like a complete violation of my privacy. It just seems like kind of a sacred document to me. No, I mean, I agree with you there in terms of I have always been and I had the same experience when I was in China because China's implemented the same rules where and, and essentially what they're trying to do is, is they're registering your presence with the local authorities, right? So they're taking a copy. Maybe they don't do this in every country, but I know that in Thailand and in China, this is what they do and they register your presence. And so, you know, I would sometimes in China, I would get a knock on my door at midnight, the police just making sure that I was actually in there. And it does, it feels like, I think it's different if you're a tourist, in my opinion. If you're a tourist, I, I like, I honestly don't care how they treat you. But if I've been given a visa to live in this country, if I've been given the right to move about freely, then I'm with you. I think it's kind of ridiculous that I'm having to give over a passport, but yeah, uh, try to fight that. That Nowadays, that's pretty hard. 
Exactly. Well, when I really saw the big difference was when I was living in the Middle East. Now, I lived in Abu Dhabi for eight years. And in the UAE, which is a gorgeous country and, and I really, really love and it holds such a special place in my heart, there are some rules that I don't agree with. And one of them is that if you stay in a room, if you're not married to that person of the opposite sex, it's against the law and you can actually go to prison for it. So to go into a hotel with a girlfriend, for example, and now you're giving over your passport and it's against the law. And that was just a little bit worrying. So, you know, just kind of things to consider like that. I'm happily married man now, so it doesn't matter. But (laughs) back in 2011, when I got over to the UAE, it was a different situation. So, I mean, having to understand the local laws and what are the repercussions of even things like this, where as an American or a Canadian, that probably would not even occur to somebody, you know, you have a partner and now you want to go stay in a hotel and that could actually jeopardize your freedom. Like that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And Mikhail, continuing on with what we were saying before, a, a couple other little extra things that I'd say is like, if you're a Google user, like if you, if you do enjoy using Google and you want to continue, there's something known as the advanced protection program that you can apply to. It's not that much. It, it really just forces 2FA and then it grants a, a little bit of extra protection on the back end of your accounts. And then on the similar side for Apple side of stuff, they've got a data and advanced data protection thing that you can easily set up on your devices that just, it adds that extra layer of protection if you feel like you need it. And so both of those, you know, if that's something that somebody who's listening to this or watching this, that that wants to just have that little bit of extra, those are both things that are worthwhile. Amazing. Well, so many good tidbits in here. So many things to keep in mind. Josh, I love it. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. Now, if my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you or or watch the channel, where can we send them? Well, I've got the YouTube channel, which is just all things secured. You can search for that or it's at all things secured. And then I'm fairly active on Twitter. So if you, my handle is all underscore secured, or again, you can just search for all things secured and I'll do my best to reply to anything there. But yeah. Amazing. Brilliant. Josh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it as well. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country. And the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico. And coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.
I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.